Welcome back to the Cot Red Podcast. We are just two dog lovers talking true crime, horror movies, and most likely our dogs too. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. This is episode 14. Yes. And we are recording this on Monday the 7th, and Megan has already forgotten about the time change. She fed the... (laughs) She fed the dogs super early because the clocks on her stoves were still an hour ahead. Yeah, so, they're going to get real hangry again shortly. Yeah, they can have a fourth meal later. Mm-hmm. And we just made a post on Instagram. I have to share this because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> so a, a Captain Crunchy Knees liked our <laughs> post. And I just want to say how much we love that name. We feel you on that one, dog. I'm the winner of two ACL surgeries right here. And then, of course, Megan. Everything is falling apart <laughs> on my body. In gymnastics all your life, that's what happens, right? Yeah, I feel like in the next 10 years, I'm going to get like knee, hip replacements, elbows, ankles. Jesse better be making some money. We both better be making some money. <laughs> That on top of all of our dog expenses. Mowgli. Yeah. Mowgli is so expensive. For people who don't know, Mowgli, when he was a year and a half old, he's five now. He just turned five, actually. But when he was a year and a half old, he got bloat, which Jesse and I had no idea what that was and never heard of it. And we were able to obviously save his life. But, I mean, we texted a couple of friends, and they are like, you need to go to the emergency vet now and we literally loaded him up in the car we drove 30 minutes to little rock i was hauling ass literally and i mean they saved his life but that was a very very expensive surgery and i always bug him about it too i said you're gonna have to earn your keep around here you know well he's retired and he just lays around yeah and then of course we got his teeth cleaned and that was expensive and now he's got antibiotics and those were expensive but he he's a he, trooper. I love him. He he's just, the sweetest thing ever. He farts every time he gets out of bed. That's he the only <laughs> thing. <laughs> he really does. It's a problem. Every time Jesse's like, get down. It's like, Whoop! as he dismounts the bed. <laughs> Anyways, la- last week I told you the story of Samuel Little who confessed over 93 murders across the U.S. throughout three decades. Definitely one of the craziest cases I've heard of, and probably you too. I mean, shit. Well, especially that body count, supposedly. Yeah. I mean, at first I thought I bit off more than I could chew, but I think I did okay. Yeah, you did good. You did a good job. Well, we are three months in to this podcast. Doesn't seem like it. I know. goes by fast. Time flies when you're having fun. We love doing it. Yeah. 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 And we're constantly thinking of things we can do in the future. Hopefully, y'all are enjoying every episode. We've done a lot of Arkansas cases so far, and then we've branched out a few times and covered some different ones. Well, we've done cold cases. We've done a serial killer now. We've Mm -hmm, done mm -hmm. mass murderer, murder mysteries, all the good stuff. All the good stuff, yes. We'll have to do some conspiracies soon. I can't wait, as long as no one tries to take us out after the fact. Right. But Megan has a good one for us today, but let's talk some shows, movies we've watched last week. Well, at least I've watched. What have you watched? I watched what? The Inside Man. 
Oh which, yeah, I fell asleep that first one. We're not talking about Denzel Washington here. That that's different. This hmm. Inside Man is a TV miniseries, and it's literally just four episodes. And we saw that Stanley Tucci was in it. Oh yeah. And we we're like, hell yeah, bet. But yeah, Megan fell asleep in like the middle of the first episode, so I just went ahead and watched all of it without her. Well, you, you well, kinda... I did the same thing though. I did the same thing with Low Country. Yeah, you were gonna wait for me to get home to start it, and then I put it on, and then you didn't pay attention, so I just watched the whole thing by myself with you in bed next to me. I don't know. I was half asleep as it was already. But yeah, Stanley Tucci plays this prisoner on death row that helps solve cases on the outside. Specifically, this British journalist comes to him for help in finding a missing teacher. So overall, I thought it was pretty good. I, I'd definitely recommend it for you to watch it all over. I'd watch it again with you maybe, but... Probably not. No. But it has some crazy twists throughout, and then there was a few kind of like slow, drawn-out areas, but there was still suspense throughout the whole thing. And the director's actually the same one as Big Sky, which... <gasps> I love Big Sky. I'm ready to watch this new season. I've been letting the episodes build up before I start season three. Yeah. I'm very excited. And then you watched Low... Did you finish Low Country? Yeah, last night. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you want to mention that or wait? Well, I mean, I mean, we already mentioned it now, but it's the it covers Alex Murdahl. And the mysteries and the murders that kind of surround him and his family, they're a very prominent family. Like, if they did something wrong, they never, they didn't actually do something wrong. Ah. Like, they're friends with all the politicians, all of the police departments. I mean, everybody knows who they are. And so it just kind of covers a couple of things that involve the family, and then it concluded with the fact that Alex Murdahl is, he, he was the dad of the family. Um, he's in prison for fraud and embezzlement, but he also has murder charges tacked on, but they've not been able to prove that. So if you're not familiar with it, it's on HBO. It was really good. It's only three episodes or about an hour long each. Cool. And then yesterday I watched The Town That Dreaded Sundown, in preparation for yes. my case. It's actually, yeah, loosely based off Megan's case today. It's a movie from 1976, and I think if you want to watch it, you'll have to either watch it on YouTube or I rented it on Amazon Prime. I won't really get into that movie because Megan is going to tell us the real life story on the Moonlight Murders, correct? Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Yeah. So anyways, you ready to do this thing? I suppose so. All right. Okay. I remembered my sources. Good I job. I did good. Thank you. <laughs> Adulting. So I got VOA News, CW33, Medium.com, Psychological Science, uh, Texas Today, Liquid Search, Columbia Doctors, Resol or, I'm sorry, Unresolved. Encyclopedia of Arkansas, Refinery29, Psychology Today, Science Direct, The New York Daily News, and Clermont Sun. That's just my papers, folks. All right, so like Jesse says, I am doing the Texarkana Moonlight Murders today. So first things first, for everyone tuning in, thank you. But if you are not familiar with Texarkana, it is a combination of Texas and Arkansas. If you couldn't figure that one out. 
So there is both a Texarkana in Arkansas and in Texas, and they're like the same, same, but, but different. different. Thank you. So they're, they're known as the Siamese Twin Cities. Texarkana, Arkansas is in Miller County. By today's consensus, there's about 30,000 residents. Obviously, it's the southwest border of the state. Its counterpart is Bowie County, Texas, and it has just a few more thousand folks. One of the main reasons the town is shared by the two states is due to the railroad. In 1873, town lots were sold in Arkansas at the intersection of two railroads. In 1874, Texarkana, Texas was founded on the rail line just across the border. Nowadays, they meet at a, I thought this was so funny, a single wide street. But it's a street, not a trailer. But all I can think was a single wide trailer. Yeah. But they meet at a single wide street called State Line Avenue. And what's funny to me also is the federal courthouse and the post office are right on the state line. The post office has a line drawn, the, drawn down the middle of the floor that separates the two. And the courtroom where the judge will sit, the chair is bolted to the floor. That way the judge is sitting in both states at all times when he's presiding. That's pretty cool. That's kind of cool. Uh, residents that live in Texarkana think of the city as one, not two. But it's important to know that each side of the city does have its own police force. And I mentioned that because it'll come into play later. So we're going to go back in time just a little bit to the 1940s. February to May 1946 to be exact. And for about two and a half months, fear will spread across both Miller and Bowie counties. Tragedy will strike a total of eight victims, five of whom will be passing away. And I know I only said eight, but of course, tragedy doesn't end with them, but also their family and their loved ones. The unsub, just a little criminal minds thrown in there. There you go, boar. (laughs) The unsub or these unidentified assailant was never caught. Police thought they had a good suspect, but he was never convicted of the crimes. This unknown man will become known as the Texarkana Phantom Killer. He wore a white mask or or a sack that had holes cut out for his eyes. He hunted at night and targeted his unsuspecting victims while they hooked up at Lover's Lane's type of spots. A Lover's Lane is a secluded area where people go to kiss or make out or do the dirty, most often in a car. Is it kind of like the Zodiac Killer, what he did? Yes, exactly. Yes. These types of attacks by the Phantom Killer were said to be the basis of an urban legend. It is the legend of the hook man or the legend of the hook. As you can guess, this man has a hook for a hand. In several versions, he's said to be faceless, wearing a raincoat and a hat. So what what does that remind you of? Um, I know what you did last summer. Yes, exactly. Boom. There you go. The mask in the movie, it's, it looked like the ones off Django Unchained. Uh, you, I know you haven't seen that movie, but... I've seen the pictures I of it. I can't see shit in this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Those, yeah. Yes, like I've seen the Jonah picture. Jonah Hill, maybe. I can't remember. The basic premise is that a young couple is canooting in a car. Here's an alert come across the radio about a crazed man that has either escaped from a prison or a mental institution, and he's installed a hook instead of his hand. Then the legend goes on to vary, like one instance after the couple leaves and and then arrive at like one of their homes. There's a hook hanging on the uh, the doorknob that's like an omen or a warning. Or, for instance, uh, another variation is the car breaks down. Soon after leaving, the man goes for help, leaves the woman in the car. He comes back and she's been killed. Another variation of the hook man is the man goes off to, like, pee in the woods. And, well, I I mean, I think you get the point. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Doesn't end well for him. No, never does. The victims of the Texarkana Phantom Killer are killed differently than those in the legend. I'm not by any means saying that being shot is any better because no one deserves to die, but thankfully the victims aren't being slaughtered by a hook. These infamous killings that rocked the quiet town of Texarkana started on February 22, 1946 on the Texas side in Bowie County. The Phantom Killer's first two victims are 24-year-old Jimmy Hollis and 19-year-old Mary Jean Larry. The couple was driving home from a double date, decided to pull off at a little local lover's lane spot just off Richmond Road, which is now Stevenson Street today. Bow chicka wow wow. By some miracle, they do survive, and they're able to tell the police what happened. Their stories are the only reason authorities and us today know any details about this man. According to the couple, just a few minutes after they had parked, another car pulls up. A man approaches the driver's side with a flashlight and a pistol. His face is covered by a hood or sack. He instructs Hollis and Larry to exit the vehicle. He tells Hollis that he doesn't want to kill them. But once Hollis steps outside of the car, this masked man tells him to remove his pants and then strikes him twice in the head. Hollis falls to the ground. The masked man then strikes Larry and then tells her to run. He stomps on Hollis a few times before he takes off after Larry. He catches up to her, strikes her again, and this is so disgusting, but he uses the barrel of the gun to sexually assault her. At this point, Larry tells him just go ahead and kill her, but to her surprise, the masked man, he flees the scene because another set of headlights appeared in the darkness. And thank God, because who only knows what would have happened next to the two. Yeah, don't get out of the car, though. I don't care if he's pointing a gun at you or not. What, crank it in verse and hell get yeah, down there? get the hell out of there. After calls came in about this incident, Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and other officers raced to the scene, but any trace of the man and Hollis's pants were gone. He kept the pants? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Larry and Hollis both recover physically from the attack, but they'll never forget that experience. Larry swore she heard the gun go off during the attack on Hollis, but it was actually the sound of his skull cracking following the second blow. Shit. Larry moves out of state because she couldn't stand the thought of ever being so close to the scene of the crime. When making their statements to the police, Larry said the man was a light-skinned black man, and Hollis said he was a white man in his 30s. There's a reason why eyewitness testimony being the best evidence is a myth, and this is one reason here. The discrepancies in their descriptions. Memory is malleable. Witnesses are biased, noticing and exaggerating some experiences, but overlooking others. It is subjective to the unconscious memory distortions, and because their recollections differed, the police at one point thought Hollis and Larry knew their attacker and were covering for him. Why would the... Why in the world would they cover for him? I don't know. And why would you want something like that happening to yourself? Yeah. And it, someone you loved. So it was dark outside. Yes, it's he nighttime. He was wearing a mask. And then he had, he had a, a hook. Fl- and he had a, no, not a hook. <laughs> oh. No, he had a pistol and a oh. flashlight. So he'd shine it in their eyes also. Yeah, I doubt you can even tell if he's black or white. Right. The next attack happens about a month later on March 24th. This attack will also be on the Texas side. Richard Griffin is a 29-year-old veteran and his girlfriend of only six weeks was 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore. They were found off a back road at another Lover's Lane type of spot. Just off a Rich Road, which is now also South Robinson. It was renamed as well. They would be discovered by motorists passing by. 
Griffin, like I said, he was a veteran. He was in uh, World War II as a CB, just like my Zeta. And Zeta is Yiddish for grandfather, by the way. The CBs basically constructed things for the Navy, but they were always ready to fight if they were needed. Moore had just graduated from high school at the age of 16. Now, to us, 17 and 29 is quite an age difference, but that was very acceptable back in the day. I have to admit, we're just not as mature you know, nowadays. Yeah. Back then, they worked harder and did more for themselves. Unlike the first couple, these two will not survive. Both are shot in the back of the head. Now, there are no witnesses, so this, the scene interpretation was just only speculation. At the scene, both Griffin and Moore were fully clothed. Neither of them had any money on them, but that was very usual, the family said. Griffin was found in the front seat, and in the back was Moore. She would actually be identified because of the class ring on her finger. It had the initials P-A-M and then her graduating year as well. It was because of their positions in the car that led investigators to think that they were shot outside the vehicle and then brought back and then posed. A blood spot was found about 20 feet away, later tested, and it was matched to Moore's. There was also blood inside the vehicle and pulled underneath. The blood had started to coagulate, meaning it was starting to clot. And when it uh, does start to coagulate, that just means that a blood vessel was damaged and the small blood particles called platelets are starting to form a plug at the site of injury. There were also 32 caliber shells located, so at least now they have an idea of what weapon was used. Unfortunately, it had rained and the water washed away any other potential evidence like a footprint. So they were shot outside the vehicle? Mm-hmm, and then you- yeah. Because if they were both shot in the head, you could tell in the vehicle if they were shot. Well, there was blood. The There's some blood in the car as well, but it wasn't like a splatter from what I read. So then you'd have to assume that he put them back in there. And one in the back and one in the, in the front. front. Yeah. Yeah. She was laying face down in the back, and he was said to kind of be wedged in the front between like where the gear shift of our cars would be, like that middle console. Yeah. So he wasn't like sitting upright. Like he just threw them in there. More or less. Basically. The next month on April 14th in Spring Lake Park, which again is on the Texas side, there'll be another couple discovered. A family comes across the body of 17-year-old Paul Martin, and this so far was the most brutal. The family that found him had kids with them, and I can't imagine them ever seeing a sight like that. The body was just slightly off the road, and had it not been for the blood, one would have thought that he was just a young boy who passed out. But it wasn't the case. Martin was shot four times. First was through his right hand, another through his left shoulder, once entering his face and once through the back of his neck that exited his face. His car was nowhere in sight and it would only be discovered about a mile later with the, key, with the keys inside. 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker would also be found, but she was two miles away in a wooded area. She still had on her coat and had suffered from two gunshot wounds, one in the chest and one in her head. Authorities had suspected something was wrong when Booker was reported to not have come home. Martin and Booker were either high school sweethearts or just very good friends. They had known each other since kindergarten. And the day prior to the murder, I'm sorry, the day prior to the murders, the little mushmouth. Mortar. Mortar. Morty. Martin had driven in from Kilgore, Texas, where his family had recently moved. Kilgore and Texarkana are about two hours apart. He came to town to visit and stay with some friends. 
Martin had also man- made plans to see Booker. He picked her up from a band performance at a local VFW. She played the saxophone and was an incredibly talented musician. Her saxophone would not be found too far from her body, and it was still in its case. To me, that this one seems like it's the strangest because their car wasn't near them. Martin's shooting was excessive. Booker was clothed with her saxophone, so it seems odd to me they would walk all that way away from the car and then she'd be so concerned that she would bring her instrument with her. I think the car was taken and then placed in that location, you know, the mile away or so. And, I mean, it's just my opinion, but it would just seem like they would have parked closer to the location where their bodies were found when they were approached. Like, it seems kind of strange. Like, what did he intend to do? Like, did he need the car? If so, like, why would he just toss everything out and go, but then he leaves the car? I don't know. I just thought that was like really weird that the car was a mile away. She's got like one of the most important things with her. So if someone was trying to steal the car and forcing you out, you're not going to grab your giant saxophone case. Right. You know, and then his shooting was just over the top. In the movie, he used the saxophone like he used the gun in sexual act. Oh, really? Yeah. So... Well, I never read anything about them, like, testing it or anything like that because it was in its case. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I was watching. I was like, oh, that's disturbing. Okay. Okay. Turn that off. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Lastly, just weeks later on May 3rd, the final incident occurs. This one is very different to the others. First of all, it's a married couple. Second, they were in their own home. And third, it was the only attack to happen in Miller County in Arkansas. Virgil Starks, 37, and his wife Katie, 36, lived in a little farmhouse just outside of town. It was near about about 9 p.m. or so, and the couple was calling it a night. Ollie, familiar. Katie leaves her husband. He's relaxing in his chair, and she goes off to bed. She hears what sounds like glass breaking, so she gets up and goes to check on Virgil. She finds him standing near the front window, and then suddenly he falls back. She goes to aid him and finds that his face is covered in blood. He'd been shot. Almost instantly, she sees she cannot do anything because he's already passed, and she goes to the phone. She's going to try and call the police. She gets two cranks in on the phone. Old school. Very old. And as she's cranking, she gets hit by two bullets, both in the head. Dang. But Katie is a survivor. One bullet enters her right cheek and exits out of her uh, head underneath her left ear. The other bullet goes under her lip, breaking her jaw, shattering several teeth, and then lodges underneath her tongue. And she survives? She survives. So she not only survives the shots, but her first thought is to go find the gun that her and Virgil have in the house. She's being blinded by her own blood because it's pouring into her eyes. She hears movement at the back of the house. So she makes a mad dash out the front door and runs to her first neighbor. The closest neighbor to her is 50 yards away, and it's her sister and brother-in-law. They weren't home. So again, she gathers her strength, and she runs another 50 yards to the next neighbor, and thankfully he was home. And the final attack, like I said, was very different in the manner that it was committed, and then, of course, the police discover it's a different pistol, but it was attributed to the same killer. Investigators found bloody footprints near Virgil's body, a uh, 22 caliber bullet and a red flashlight outside. 
She's a badass. Yeah. She's on Final Girl list right there. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking the same thing. Get out of my head. <laughs> well, was it a copycat killer right there? Or is I don't know. he just decided to change things up? I don't know. Very strange to go from killing people in their cars to a house like that. Yeah, and that. those were Texas. This was Arkansas yeah. side. Yeah, it's very strange. All these strings of attacks led residents to start purchasing weapons and staying home at night. They were afraid to go out in the evening. Eventually, these moonlight murders would be made into a movie, just like Jesse said, that he was watching. In 1976, the film was called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's based off the same events, like how it happened and why, but uh, thankfully, they changed the names. There's also a sequel in 2014, and it involves a copycat, or does it? Dun, dun, dun. It would have to be in that, well, I don't know what time, what date the, the movie was placed in, but I guess if it was 2014. It'd probably be a copycat. <laughs> like it would have been dead by, the, he would have been dead by then. Maybe. Or very, very old. Very, very old. Back in 1946, they didn't know what to call this occurrence or this masked man. Yes, he was dubbed the Phantom Killer, but what was he? Us today instantly go to the fact that he was a serial killer, right? The term didn't even exist, not until the 1970s. Really? Right. Serial killers were generally called mass murderers by both the criminal system and the media. It was FBI agent Robert Ressler who more or less created the term in the 1970s. And you're like, oh, who is that? I know that name. It was him and John Douglas that get all the recognition when it comes to serial killers. And really, it was the term serial homicide that was being used. The media chooses to use the term serial killer because it sounds scarier in scary cells. I did read that the term serial killer was used back in the 1930s in Germany. Here in the U.S., it really wasn't until the 1980s when the word serial killer appeared in the paper. There was a man named Wayne Williams who had been looked at for the murders of 31 children in the Atlantic area in 1979 to like 1981. And the media, they're the worst, especially about all this. They already started using certain words to heighten fear. They were playing up the terror. They shared certain details. Sometimes the community and the victim's involvement was written out unless it added to the panic. They really made it sound like it was a movie, like headlines would be, Young teens being hunted by madman. Of course, that's going to grab people's attention, you know. Or mo Moonlight Murderer. That that just, I mean, that probably gets the serial killer off by having a nickname like that. Yeah. And that, I'm sure, was the media probably giving him that name. Yes. Yes, yeah. it was. When the first attacks on Hollis and Larry happened, it took the media three days to do a write-up. And the headline read, Insurance agent, comma, girl assaulted on a lonely dirt road. The morning after Griffin and Moore's murders, an article titled Couple Found Shot to Death in Auto was on the front page. Residents really didn't become too worried until after Martin Booker's death, so that third attack. So it took the three attacks for them to be like, oh, there's like a pattern or something developing. Now, besides local police, the Texas Rangers and the FBI come rolling in. The police kept on and they ended up doing most of the grunt work while the rangers and the feds shined in the limelight and they were the, the public faces of the investigation. And I made myself laugh because when I read that, my mind went uh, to Rizzoli and Isles. Of course it did. Of course. Um, the very first episode, Angie Harmon plays Detective Jane Rizzoli and she says, 
you fed boys, you like to show up and take the bat and the ball. <laughs> I laughed so hard to myself at work yesterday. <laughs> Despite everyone's effort, though, they were just kind of at a standstill. There was little evidence to go off of. It was one of the rangers that was in charge, Manuel Gonzalez, that said that residents need to be armed and ready. And this was before the attack on the couple in their own home. Between him and the media, you can only imagine how scared the town was. There was this little sad story that it came across. The individuals involved aren't named. But one night, Chief Deputy Sheriff Tillman was making his rounds. He sees his parked car. He sees two people, a male and a female, inside. He approaches them and he asks them if they were scared to be out at night. And the female says to him, well, you ought to be the one who's scared. It's a good thing you told me who you are because she had a 25 caliber pistol aimed right at him the whole time. Hell yeah. She, she ready. was ready. She was ready to hook up and kill if she needed to. <laughs> the whole town of Texarkana was paranoid and for good reason. The residents knew very little. So did the police. The attacks were random. The police had the word of two victims that differed. The killer was such a mystery, leaving behind no trace. And I couldn't ever find anywhere if Katie Starks ever saw the man to give a description. It was his, it was her attack that sent the, the town into overdrive. Because if it was the same man, then he had no problem changing his M.O. And since nothing bad had happened in the area or around Texarkana, they just all agreed that it was probably the same man, the Phantom Killer. She's the one that got shot in the head twice? Yes, and, and survived. survived, yes. Yeah, she probably lost all her memory. From that. Jeez. Or just blanked. Yeah. Blacked it all out. All the blood in her face when she couldn't God, see shit too. That's terrifying. I used Google Maps to see the locations of each attack. The first attack on Stevenson Street was three and a half miles or so from attack two on South Robinson. Then from there, the third attack that was Spring Lake Park was about six miles from the second attack. And then, of course, the last attack was over 20 miles away. So those first three were just within five or six miles of one another. And then you have the fourth one. How much time between each one? Barely a month. Wow. So it's kind of odd that you'd have three so close together and then that last one miles away. Yeah. In the movie, it was 21 days and then 21 days. So they thought it was like every 21 like, days. Like some sort they of were, pattern. Yeah, so like they all. Well, that could be because of uh, the moon. I mean, it was oh, called yeah. Moonlight Murders because yeah. it was the evening, but they also speculated full moons or things of that sort or different phases of the moon started this whole thing. In the movie, they had one of the cops dress up as a girl and get oh, in the passenger Lord. seat with one of the other cops and just sit out there in a car and wait. <laughs> While another cop was, like, out in the woods scoping out the scene. That's smart. <laughs> yeah. Setting a trap. Yeah. Authorities would arrest nearly 400 suspects. There were a few crazies that came forward claiming to be the Phantom Killer. For example, in 1948, there was a young man. He was a student at the University of Arkansas. He committed suicide, and he confessed in his suicide note to being the Phantom Killer. Of course, no evidence ever supported that. And oddly enough, that student was from a very prominent family in Texarkana, the Tennysons. So he had a connection. Hmm. So in the movie, too, you had people coming out and confessing. There's saying, always crazy yeah. people. They're like, it was me. And they're like, why would you admit to that? Because they already 15 had 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, they already had a bunch of warrants out for their arrest anyways. And they knew they were going to 
go to jail for a long time for those. So they're mm-hmm. like, might as well might just as say, well I'm, another one I'm on. the Moonlight Murderer. Authorities did have one suspect out of that several hundred that seemed like a pretty good potential fit. UL, I think it's how you say it. UL, it's Y-O-U-E-L-L. UL, Swinney, I'm going with it. He was a repeat offender. His record was full of car thefts, counterfeiting, burglary, and assault. Max Tackett was a rookie state trooper and was able to tie Swinney to the Texarkana area because of a a recent uh, new car theft. Swinney died in 1994 in jail. He was arrested on theft charges, plus being such a repeat offender, they're like, oh, we'll just keep him. He was never charged for any of the murders. An author named James Presley wrote a book titled The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Story in a Town of Terror. He is the nephew of Sheriff Presley from Bowie County, who was the lead investigator of the murders. Based on his conversations with his uncle, both men believed that Uwell Swinney was the killer. One reason was Swinney's wife said she named her husband as the killer, even though she recanted. She knew too many details about the killings, like it was possible she could have been at some of the crime scenes. Whoa. It's hard to believe that the intensity increased with every attack and then they just stopped. But he also did go into jail. Yeah, if he was in jail. That could have stopped. Makes sense. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry were assaulted and survived. They did end up breaking up and they went their own ways. Jimmy went on to be married and have seven children. He passed away very peacefully at age 54. Mary sadly passed away from cancer at 38. Katie Starks recovered and remarried. She passed away in 94. The murders of Richard Griffin, Polly Ann Moore, Paul Martin, Betty Jo Booker, and Virgil Starks remain unsolved. And that, folks, is the Reader Digest version of the Moonlight Murders. Good job. Thank you. That was good. Thank you. Better than the movies. Well, thank you. (laughs) I didn't make any money off that, though. Well, that wraps up today's episode. We'll have our bonus episode for you Thursday. You can follow us on Instagram at Caught Red Podcast, spelled P-A-W-D. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. Thanks for listening, as always. Megan, you want to close it out for us? Stay local. Shop local. Murder local.